scripture reading is Genesis 50, 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a, a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept, wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for, I, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord. I have a lot of accessories. Excuse me. All right. Let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, we thank you this morning. Uh, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your word and the fact that you speak to us. And God, I ask that you would, by your spirit, move in our hearts, help us to hear from you, and help us to behold Jesus. And it's in his great name we pray. Amen. Well, in the very first season of Apple TV's Ted Lasso, the main character, Ted Lasso, played by Jason Sudeikis, and perhaps most importantly, Jason Sudeikis' mustache, um, Ted Lasso is an American football coach who is called upon uh, to coach a floundering British soccer team, AFC Richmond. Ted was hired by the team's new owner, Rebecca Weldon, who had acquired the team as part of a divorce settlement. Now, her reason for hiring Ted, a ridiculous choice, given that he had spent his entire career coaching the wrong type of football, was to sink the team. She wanted AFC Richmond to fail because it was something that her ex-husband loved. And in addition to setting up Ted to fail, Rebecca also sabotaged Ted every chance, they, uh, every chance she got. But despite all of that, Ted eventually won the team, the town, and Rebecca herself over. And in a climatic scene toward the end of the first season, Rebecca comes clean about all that she had been doing up to that point to bring him down. She admits her original intentions of bringing him there to fail. She admits her attempts to undermine him, to make his job impossible and his life hard. She admits to hurting him. Through tears, she lays it all out, and Ted responds with three words. I forgive you. And those were the last three words that Rebecca apparently expected to hear because she responds with her own three words. You what? Why? See, true forgiveness often catches us off guard. It can feel impossible. And in our text, Joseph's brothers assumed that Joseph would never be able to forgive them. They figured that what they had done was too much. 
that they had disqualified themselves, surely he would retaliate. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. See, Joseph, by God's grace, was able to offer true forgiveness to men who did not deserve it. And this morning, we're going to spend some time looking at the how and the why of true forgiveness. But to understand how radical the forgiveness offered in this text is, I want us to start by looking at Joseph's backstory. So if you will bear with me, we're going to take an aerial view of 13 chapters in the book of Genesis so that we can understand, so we can set the stage, so we can look at the context of what is going on here. Are we okay with that? I'll get you out of here by lunch, I promise. All right. So let's, let's begin uh, by looking again at the backstory. The story of Joseph begins all the way back in Genesis 37. And with a brief interruption in chapter, uh, except for a brief interruption in chapter 38, it runs all the way through the end of the book of Genesis. Joseph is one of 12 sons born to Jacob. Uh, Jacob was a recipient of God's promise and his blessing, and his sons went on to become the 12 tribes of Israel. So this is a great family, right? Not so much. This was an extremely dysfunctional family, which I don't know about you, but that gives me great hope. (laughs) See, these 12 sons were born to four different women, and Jacob clearly had a favorite, Joseph's mother, Rachel. And as a result of his favoritism, Joseph was treated, or as a a result of uh, Jacob's favoritism with his wives, Joseph was treated with favoritism, as Genesis 37 reports. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Well, things grew more tense from there when Joseph started having dreams. Uh, In the next verses we read, Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now, it would become clear as the story goes on that this dream, as well as Joseph's other dreams, were given to him by God. But this may have been a good dream to kind of keep to himself. (laughs) But he had no intention of doing that. And soon thereafter, he had another dream that was even more grandiose. In verses 9 through 11, we read, Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. He's a humble guy, this Joseph. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Well, the jealousy and hatred of Joseph's brothers soon led them to take action against Joseph. See, after reporting this second dream, Joseph's brothers went out to pasture Jacob's flocks, 
And Jacob sent Joseph out to his brothers to go check on them, on him, on them, excuse me. And his brothers saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Well, they ended up thinking better of that, but not much better. See, after roughing him up and throwing him into a pit, they saw a group of Ishmaelite traders going by, and Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. This new reality that Joseph finds himself in is a far cry from the dreams that he had been having. Well, things went from bad for Joseph to worse. Uh, we're going to go a little faster through Joseph's story now. Uh, see, after being sold into slavery, Joseph wound up in Egypt, and he ended up being sold again, purchased by a man named Potiphar. And he found favor in Potiphar's sight, which was good. But he also found favor in the sight of Potiphar's wife, which was bad, uh, because she continually tried to seduce him. Until one day, in her desperation, she accused him of rape when he yet again refused to sleep with her. Well, this accusation got Joseph imprisoned, where he found himself in yet another pit. His journey seems to be going from one pit to another. And he ended up spending a total of 13 years either as a prisoner or a slave. 13 years. But in those dark years, God was with him. He had never left Joseph's side. As one author writes, Joseph's life, Joseph's life was the pits, but God was with him. And through a series of God-ordained events, Joseph was eventually brought from the lowest pit to one of the highest places of honor in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself, as we read in Genesis 41. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and over all my people, excuse me, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Joseph said, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Well, while Joseph was in this position of authority, his brothers came to Egypt. They came there to buy food as there was a severe famine in the land. And they came before Joseph, as Joseph was the one who sold to all the people of the land. Now, when they came before Joseph, they didn't recognize him because it had been about 20 years since they had last seen him. But Joseph recognized them. Now, he didn't reveal himself to them at first. Instead, he accuses them of being spies in order to test them. And through a long process, the brothers show real repentance, and Judah the one who came up with the idea to sell Joseph into slavery, offers to be enslaved himself in order to save his family. And at that point, Joseph loses it. And in Genesis 45, we read, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who, all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. 
And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Understandably so. Or they probably thought, surely he is going to take his revenge. See, over the months and years, they had begun to believe that God was going to punish them for what they had done. And now it seemed like their judgment was finally here. They were falling into the pit that they had dug for Joseph. They waited for a word of condemnation, but it never came. Instead, there was overwhelming tenderness, kindness, and affection. Joseph kissed all of his brothers and wept upon them. Crazy, right? Well, when we finally get to our text, Genesis 50, right, we're fast-forwarding a bit. Jacob has died, and his brothers apparently just can't wrap their heads around the display of forgiveness that they've already received. And they think, like, surely, surely Joseph's forgiveness, now that our father is gone, it's not going to hold. They think in the back of their minds, perhaps he, he just did all of this as a display for our father. And so they come up with a scheme, and that's what we see at the beginning of our text. In verses 15 through 17, we read, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. How convenient. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please Forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. As you might expect, given his brother's checkered past, this plea for forgiveness was messy. It, it was twisted because it was introduced with a lie. Jacob hadn't given a command to Joseph to forgive his brothers. There's no hint of it anywhere in Genesis and in fact, there's no evidence that Joseph had done anything to cause his father to even question, to even imagine that he would hurt his brothers. But despite the shadiness of the way in which the request was made, it did appear to be a genuine request. Their plea contained a full confession of their sin and their desperate desire for forgiveness. Right? Twice they plead for forgiveness. And they described their actions in forthright terms. Right? They called it transgression twice. They called it sin. They called it evil. Right? They didn't employ euphemisms. They didn't call their sin a mistake or a lapse or an error in judgment. And so Joseph was able to see their request for what it was. Despite the deception, it was the cry of their guilt-ridden hearts for forgiveness. So how did Joseph respond? Joseph wept when they spoke to him. While he doesn't say the words, I forgive you, his words and actions indicate that that is exactly what he did. And I think two questions emerge from this encounter, from this exchange. 
And those questions are how and why. How could he have forgiven them, given what they had done to him? And why would he? All right, so having thoroughly set the stage, let's look at the how and the why of true forgiveness from this text. We're going to start with the how of true forgiveness. Now, there is, is so much that can be said on this topic, which is why we've, we're spending four weeks on the topic of forgiveness. And the truth is, that's not enough. Uh, but from this text, I want us to look at two things sort of under this heading, the how of true forgiveness. And the first thing, the first thing that's needed in order for us to forgive is honesty about the wrong. True forgiveness requires that we are honest about the transgression. And we have that here in this text. As I just mentioned, though the brother's approach to Joseph is flawed because it's couched in a lie, the confession itself is real. It's true. It's honest. They are blunt about what they've done and the nature of it. Again, they describe their actions in plain terms. They call it transgression twice. They call it sin. They call it evil. And Joseph is real about that as well. He doesn't downplay what they've done. He doesn't say, well, it wasn't really that bad. Because it was. It was really bad. They sold their brother into slavery, which resulted in him being a slave or a prisoner for 13 years. There's no real downplaying that. So he doesn't attempt to do that. Nor does he try to provide some sort of like good intention silver lining. Like clearly, you didn't mean for that to happen. No, they did. Instead, Joseph is very real about what has happened and about his brother's intentions. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me. That's it. He's honest. He is blunt. They perpetrated evil because that is exactly what they intended to do. And without that, right, without being real about what's gone on, true forgiveness can't really take shape. This is something that we're, we're trying to teach our kids. We've got a, a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And when we, uh, when we, when we, get our kids to, to apologize, oftentimes the form that it takes, you know, there's like a, kind of like a, you know, or turn, a turning away, and, you know, they'll say the word sorry, but it's oftentimes like under their breath. It's, it's hardly audible. And, and, and when that happens, Katie and I will, will get our, our kids to look at us in the face, and we'll ask the question, sorry for what? Sorry about what? Which they love. It's great. Um, <laughs> they, they don't love it, but it's important. It's very important because the words I'm sorry by themselves without actual ownership, they don't mean much, do they? If someone wants forgiveness, they need to be real about what they've done. And if we're going to extend true forgiveness, even if it's not being asked for, because that, that does happen, doesn't it? If we're going to extend true forgiveness, even when it's not asked for, we need to be real about what's taken place what we're actually forgiving. In Psalm 32, 5, the psalmist says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, 
and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I mean, that last line, the iniquity of my sin, it's acknowledging that the sinfulness of my sin, right, the grossness of it, the heinousness of it, the person asking for forgiveness and the person extending it need to be real, honest about the sinfulness of the action. So there needs to be honesty about the wrong. Second, there needs to be a vertical perspective. When Joseph's brothers came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants, begging him for forgiveness, in Joseph's mind, that forgiveness was a given because he was looking at things from a vertical perspective in light of God and God's character and his works. And so Joseph responds, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. See, Joseph recognized that there was a rightful judge, but it wasn't him. Joseph was a sinner in need of grace, just like his brothers. In his mind, to withhold forgiveness would be to take on a mantle that belonged to God alone. Additionally, another aspect of the vertical perspective that Joseph has here, Joseph was able to recognize that despite his brother's evil intentions and their evil actions, God was at work in the midst of his circumstances. Tim Keller writes, evil people can do, can do some very evil things, and we must be careful not to do anything to short-circuit the rightful laments and expressions of pain that the prayers of the Bible show are healthy and justified. However, we must not get stuck there. If you know, like Joseph, that God is working out his plan for good in all things, then you can look at the perpetrator and say, you cannot ultimately harm me. You can't take me out from under God's care and love. Joseph's life was the pit, but God was with him. And because Joseph knew that, he was able to look past his circumstances and offer forgiveness. Now, a question worth asking is, what about justice? What about holding people accountable for the wrong that they've done? Does the call for forgiveness mean that we don't pursue justice, that we, that we don't hold perpetrators accountable? I think the answer is no. But forgiveness does shift the focus. See, without forgiving, often our desire to hold someone accountable stems from a desire to retaliate, a desire for revenge. Forgiving someone, though, changes the disposition of our hearts from a desire for the wrongdoer's pain to a desire for his or her good. Injustice hurts everyone. Right? It grieves God. It mars creation. It hurts victims. And it even brings harm on the wrongdoer. So Christians, forgiving Christians, have a duty to seek justice, to speak the truth in love and not shield people from the consequences of their actions. And I think we, we saw a powerful example of this in the trial of Amber Geiger, 
It was a former Dallas police officer back in 2019. In September of 2018, Geiger came home from work and entered a neighboring apartment thinking that it was her own. And when she saw a black man inside the apartment, she shot and killed him. The man she shot was Botham Jean, uh, her unarmed neighbor who was watching TV in his own home. Geiger was charged and convicted of murder, and she was sentenced to 10 years in prison. But just after sentencing, the victim's brother, Brant Jean, spoke in her trial, and he declared forgiveness over her, saying that he wants truly what is best for her, which he said meant turning to Jesus. In a powerful moment, in an emotional moment, he even asked the judge, can I hug her? And the judge granted that request, and they embraced the entire courtroom turned to a puddle. Christians around the country, after that took place, uh, praised Brandt for his incredible act of forgiveness. And among those Christians was his mother, Allison, who said that she was proud of her son and encouraged him to always walk with God. But she, among others, felt that it was right and necessary that Geiger serve out her sentence. Forgiveness and justice can and should go hand in hand. But true forgiveness, it requires honesty about the wrong and a vertical perspective, knowing that we are not in the place of God and that he is able to use all things for good. I want to close by looking at the why of true forgiveness. Why forgive? Well, let's consider first the alternative to forgiveness for just a second. The alternative being resentment. Now, this may be an unpopular opinion, but I don't think that resentment is a good thing. Especially since studies have shown uh, all sorts of negative effects associated with resentment. For example, uh, the Journal of Psychosomatic Research found that holding on to resentment was associated with greater symptoms of anxiety and depression. And that forgiveness was associated with lower levels of anxiety and depression. Furthermore, research has shown that holding on to negative emotions like resentment can have negative effects on physical health as well. There's a study published in the Journal of Behavioral Medicine that found that holding on to anger and resentment was associated with higher levels of inflammation, which can lead to a whole other uh, host of, of problems. And according to Carrie Fisher in her novel, The Best Awful, Resentment is like drinking poison and then waiting for the other person to die. (laughs) So it's good for us to seek out forgiveness. It's literally good for us to seek out forgiveness. But the true reason to seek forgiveness is because that is exactly what we have received in the gospel. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. A few weeks ago, we looked at the debt that we owe God. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And through our sin, we have accrued a debt that we cannot afford to pay, not in this lifetime or in a thousand lifetimes. But in Christ, God has forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, 
nailing it to the cross. So we forgive because God in Christ has forgiven us. And the follow-up to that, the thing that, that comes along with forgiveness, is love. Right? In the very next verses, Paul writes, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. A few weeks ago, uh, the Christian author Karen Kingsbury posted a photo on Instagram of a, a, a double rainbow on the grounds of uh, Covenant School in Nashville, which was the site of a school shooting in which six people, including three children, were murdered. Now, the thing that made this double rainbow so significant is that it occurred at the exact time that families of the Covenant School we're meeting for the very first time on school grounds since the shooting. A rainbow in, in Genesis 9 was a sign of God's covenant with Noah. And for these parents on that day, it was a sweet reminder of God's presence with and faithfulness to them, even in the midst of unimaginable tragedy. And in the caption, Kingsbury explained all of that and went on to say, the outpouring of love here in Nashville toward Covenant has been breathtaking. Yes, we mourn and grieve the loss of life and innocence. We always will. But we stand strong. We remain. And get this, a number of Covenant fam families anonymously pulled together to pay for the shooter's funeral. Because Jesus says, love your enemies. Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning we, we, we thank you for the incredible gift of forgiveness that we have received. Lord, each and every one of us owes a debt to you that we cannot pay. But by your grace, you sent your son into the world to take on that debt for us. So Lord, we, we pray that by your spirit you would help us to see that the record of debt which once stood against us has been canceled. It has been nailed to the cross. It has died with Jesus. Lord, help us to hear that and to receive that. And God, help us to live in light of it. Father, we pray that we would be people marked by compassion, love, mercy, and forgiveness. So Lord, we ask that you would help us to be real about our sin, to acknowledge that we have fallen short, to not use euphemisms 
to not try to explain things away, but to say this is what we've done and to ask for forgiveness. But God, in the same breath, we ask that you would enable us to extend it because we have received it. Father, please keep the gospel on our minds and in our hearts. Fill us with love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.